In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Sandy here. Today on Money Tales, we talk with Ariel Nobile. Love is a common thread in the money stories Ariel shares with us. She talks about how money is being used in her family to express love, sometimes with strings attached and sometimes without restriction. She also talks about how she and her husband, both of whom are artists dealing with money stigmas of that profession, have deeply explored the relationship with money in the context of their loving relationship with each other. This is Cami. Ariel is a documentary filmmaker who's usually the one asking all the questions. Her company, Legacy Connections Films, produces documentary films for high net worth families to reflect their history, truths, shared values, and vision for the future. Ariel is also the producer, director of the award-winning documentary series, Belonging in the USA, Stories from Our Neighbors. The first film in the trilogy, the story of Michael D. McCarty, was a 2019 official selection at the Pan-African Film Festival, the largest Black film festival in the United States. She's also a fellow podcaster. Money Tales is brought to you by Asperian, a leading independent wealth management firm where we passionately believe in the importance of having money conversations. At the end of the interview, please stick around for our reflections on the conversation. Now, onto our interview with Ariel Nobile. Ariel Nobile, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's great to start this conversation with you. And what we like to do is have our guests give a brief introduction, which is always hard to do. Life is rich. But if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and share a few, maybe two or three pivotal moments that got you to this conversation today. I'm a seeker and I'm a questioner and I'm a curious being. And I love really deep conversations. I'm also a legacy filmmaker, which is a form of documentary filmmaking. I say my company is Legacy Connections Films, and I, my sort of tagline is your legacy beyond the wealth, because a lot of times people equate legacy with money, and that is a part of it and can be, but it isn't everything, and also what is wealth. So I, in my filmmaking process, I work with Families who are looking to get a better like grasp and depth of like how they got to be who they are, who they are, and then who they want to be moving forward. And I love to ask juicy questions in that process about money and what it's for and how it got created and what the meaning it's had. And like, those are hard questions to ask people and money is still such a taboo topic, which is another 
thing that drew me to this conversation because I love talking about taboo things. <laughs> and I just feel like it's something that we, I have aspired to get more confident, competent, and comfortable with talking about as I've grown as a person. And done a lot of work on my own relationship with money and so that I can a better serve people that I work with, but also just have a better life. That's a good overview. We like to start in the beginning. Let's go back. Something's drawing you to all these curious seeker attributes. Tell us more about your upbringing. I was born in Evanston, Illinois, northwestern town, and moved to Wilmette, Illinois when I was five. I always felt like we didn't have that much money because I was comparing myself to people around me in this very wealthy suburb that just had a lot of money, it seemed. So I feel like it's always about money is relative, just like everything is. So, but I remember, you know, gosh, I always got, I had three great grandmothers, which is also what drew me to my work. And one of them, I can remember, she was from the Ukraine and she lived to be a hundred and she would hand me money, like bills, right? Here's $5, here's $10. I felt like there was a lot of old people in my life just handing me cash as a kid, which was so great. And I had like my underwear sock drawer, my top drawer where all the money went. And here's a great funny story about me in grade school. I decided, I guess that money had like some power, right? And I wanted to treat my friends. There was like an ice cream bar at my elementary school. And I brought like a 20, maybe it was a 50 even, to school from my underwear drawer without telling my mom. The guy, the custodian, his name was Guy. I loved this man. And he, I gave him the money and I wanted to buy my whole table ice cream. I must have been in like third grade or something. And he was like, oh no, I won't take your money. And he just gave us all ice cream and he gave me back the money. So that money, by the way, I took extra ice cream and put it in my lunchbox, my My Little Pony lunchbox. And then I had a play date after school. So I went to this friend's house and her mom is like, probably opens my back and is like, what is going on here? And finds the money, like all the evidence, the money and the melted ice cream I had left in my, <laughs> in my lunchbox. So of course she tells my mom, I have all this large bill in the eighties. This is a lot of money. I don't think I got in trouble, but it was one of those, it was an opportunity to talk about money. I don't remember anything more of what the conversation became, but yeah, that's one of my early memories around money. Another funny story is there was, my dad was an attorney. He worked for himself in the city. And my mom had, when I got to a certain age, she had a children's clothing business, 100% cotton clothing that she sold out of our basement with a friend. And they had all this inventory and I was always getting cool, like colorful flap doodles clothing. I was sort of her model and she sold it kind of like Tupperware. But she had money and interns and she had college students that would come in and work for her in our house and sometimes babysit my sister and I. And there must have been, oh, there was this time where my dad was out of town and I guess he had left her, again, some cash. And I thought, I don't know what I was thinking in my little eight or nine-year-old brain. I just took the money. Maybe I put it in my underwear drawer. <laughs> and I remember distinctly my mom she talks out loud a lot and she was like worrying out loud as she watered the plants and closed the blinds about how she was going to have to accuse this college student of stealing it, that she didn't know where the money was. Now we've talked about this and she, I think knew it was me. and was trying to get me to confess. 
And I was just, I can like see myself tagging along behind her, feeling more and more guilty. And finally I did cryingly tell her, it was me, it was me, don't arrest her. <laughs> and again, I don't remember, I don't think I was punished or anything, but it was just these funny sort of like testing the limits, like what could money be? But it wasn't until I started, I guess, working with families and family businesses and going to Purposeful Planning Institute and sort of learning more that I recognized that my own family, I was kind of a part of the three generations, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in a way, because my great grandfather, that same Bubby, the 100 year old lady who handed me the money, her husband and her had had a custom furniture factory in Chicago. And their sons all worked for them, my grandfather being the youngest. But by the time I was born, it had burned to the ground. And my grandfather continued to like have his own sort of side hustle. And he was kind of estranged business-wise from his brother. So there was a lot of drama. And it was kind of before my time. But now in hindsight, I think, wow, my mom could have been that third generation. It sort of all fell apart even before that. And my grandfather continued to be both a steward of like teaching me about money. Like I got a Roth IRA for my 16th birthday from him, which at the time was incredibly boring. And I was so annoyed. <laughs> and now I look back and I, I like did Susie Orman's book workbooks and stuff. And I'm like, why didn't I invest in that? Like it would have been such a good idea. And I remember him talking to me on the phone. He died when I was like 22, but he really tried to give me some economic education. He paid for my education, my NYU education, which was not, he gave me stocks from a young age. I knew that I had stock. I knew that I had money. He talked about money in this way, but he was the only person I would say in my life that did that. And it was like not enough or like, I didn't really care at the ages that I was when he was trying to educate me that way. And yet, I also was a really young entrepreneur. I had made my own female jewelry and sold it at the sidewalk sales with my mom, who was selling these clothes. I had a summer camp for children in my backyard when I was in middle school that I got like 20 people to give me their kids. I had employees. My mom let me do all this stuff. So I was always finding ways to make money. I always wanted to have money. And I was a saver, actually, besides that splurge of trying to buy all these people. <laughs> I love that. And eventually I saved enough money from babysitting and all my businesses and stuff as a young person. I worked in coffee shops, grocery stores, that I took myself to Europe when I was 18 for three months. And I spent pretty much all the money I had saved my whole childhood, but it was worth it. It was so amazing. It was such an experience. We stayed in like small pensiones. It was such an adventure. It was so great. And it felt good, I think, that I did that for myself. So I think I always understood the value of both working for money and that it was there to create experience and like to foster things that mattered. But I also think that it, I saw a lot of conflict maybe between my parents around money. And so I think I also was like, but this could also be this sort of evil thing. That's interesting. See more about that, Ariel. I don't know exactly. I just feel like there was always this tension of like, my dad worked for himself. Now being a business owner too, you never really know. You don't have the security of knowing that you're going to have an income and knowing that, you know, being able to plan in the way that people who are salaried do. So it's both this risk and this excitement. And I just think that we're probably, I was too young to understand. And, you know, my parents were married for 
they were together since they were 14 and then they got divorced when I was 28. So they were together for 40 years. So who knows from a child's perspective, I don't know. I remember feeling like the tension was about money or not having enough or maybe things, one person wanted this and one person didn't want this and sort of, I feel like in some subconscious way, my wanting to work and have my own money was related to not wanting to depend on that struggle. I also didn't mention this, my grandmother, who's 90, almost 91 now, who was married to this grandfather with the furniture business, she really didn't work her whole adult life. She raised my mom and my aunt, but she was always in my head, out loud, but always sort of in the back of my mind saying, don't ever rely on a man. You have to make your own way. You always have to have your own money. And I think it's probably because she didn't have it. I mean, my grandfather gave her an allowance and they had a wonderful marriage and all of that. And she's lived the rest of her life sort of off that money that he made. And she's always like, can't believe how much she has because of what he did. But that tension between earning something, not earning it, whose money is it kind of questions. I feel like there was a lot of just fraughtness and a sense that money could pollute relationships maybe that if you weren't careful like a money conversation or something you felt about money could damage something irreparably and i don't know i kind of know i feel like there was probably some issues when my great grandparents died and the money was split up or again to this day even though i'm this person who loves to ask questions and get at the root of things and even though my grandmothers were my first films I don't think at that point I was able to ask these money questions. I know I didn't ask my grandmothers the same money questions I ask my clients now. And I've tried. I've gone back and tried to sort of re... And then I will say this on my other side, my other grandparents. My grandfather was a door-to-door swimming pool salesman in Chicago. So that's a tough job. And my grandmother was a secretary. And so very different class. Even though they grew up, they were in the same town, Skokie, Illinois, there was a lot of class tension between my parents' in-laws to this day is kind of there. And so like when I got married and registered for dishes, I hope my grandmother never listens to this. (laughs) Both my grandmothers are alive. My other one's almost 94. She was like upset with me that I had sort of gone bougie and was registering. And I'm saying I didn't even get like China and I got everyday like nice Kate Spade dishes there was always this tension in me, like, whose side are you on? Are you going to be with the bougies? Or are you going to be with the working class? And that's this tension. I think my parents held that tension too. My mom maybe wanting the finer things, my dad wanting to give them to her, but at the same time, not caring about that stuff. And it's reflected in how they live the rest of their lives now. And neither of them are materialists. I think they were both also interested in experience over stuff, but how that experience was going to play out. They took us to Costa Rica when I was 13. They took us on incredible adventures, my parents. They took us to Costa Rica for three weeks when I was 13. And like, they didn't have a plan. We didn't stay in resorts. Just we went to towns. They had already been there once. And we just would show up and be like, where are we going to stay tonight? And my dad wanted to stay in like this amazing, like little mountain cabin with just mosquito nets and like no screens on the windows. (laughs) My mom and my sister and I were like, no, we can't do this. So we would go and find the lodging for the night. Now as a parent, I'm like, I would never. <laughs> I would, like, I plan everything. I want it to be fun and adventurous, but part of the fun for me is like, I know where I'm going. 
I have looked at the broom on, <laughs> on the screen. I think there's a part about money is how we deal with money has to do with our relationship to risk too. And I think my parents have very different risk relationships. I'm guessing my father was had, and my husband and I in this way, he's an immigrant who sort of had nothing when he came here. And I think we have a similar risk tolerance relationship to that my parents did in some ways. And I think maybe when you have nothing to start with, you're not as afraid of losing because you know what it's like. Whereas if you've had something at some point, there's this tension of like, oh my God, I'm scared of that. I don't know what that's like and I never want to know what that's like. There is a lot of money observation that you were doing growing up. There was some money conversation at that grandparent level, with your grandfather specifically, and a little bit with your grandmother's handing you money or asking you about purchases. But it sounds like a lot of your messaging was based on observing other people as opposed to being taught specific things. Yes. And I also would say that as you're saying that I think that money in my family was love and still is to some degree. It's love and power. And so that's just something I observed probably too. No one ever would say that, but I think it's the way it shows up. Ariel, I don't want to assume I know what you mean by money being love. Could you bring that to life? Yes. I think this is true in a lot of families that if there is some amount of wealth, it's easy to buy a love. It's easy to buy attention. It gets mixed up with relation, like with just, so I'll say this and gosh, again, I hope my grandmother's never hear this conversation, but I was just telling my mom about this recently with my dad's mother. She, for my whole life, I'm so grateful has sent me $100 on my birthday every year, never changed for inflation. That's what she can do. I'm grateful for it. My relationship with her is not at all caught up in money. I know we're in each other's lives because we love each other. And she's my grandmother. My other grandmother has been able to give me more money. She can do that. As I've gotten older, she's given me more and more. I've been very generous. But there feels like there's some kind of string attached to it in that I was just saying we have taken that money that she gives us often and used it to go visit her. And I'm the only one in my generation that has done that. And then does that feel like it just is, gets layered with this meaning instead of just, I want to be with you. I'm going to spend time with you, which is really the place it's coming from. But it can be construed in so many ways and even the way it's given. Like it is such a gift, right? But it is also in some ways for her comes out of like a scarcity of you know how love and money can be tied up in scarcity consciousness. So if you feel like people aren't necessarily going to love you, my grandmother on that side is a little bit more of an intense person and tough cookie. <laughs> when my grandfather passed away, she immediately sold the other apartment and the car that he had specifically bought that we could all then go and use when we were down where she lives. And to me, maybe it was because it was too much work to take care of, but I think more it was fear of not having the power in the relationship. So I think there's a like power dynamic. I think love and power and money can get so intertwined. And 
I don't think that she is consciously say like writing these checks saying this is how I show love because we talk on the phone and we have all these other kinds of things, but I know that she does equate it in some way with this is me. I'm able to do this. I never thought I'd be able to do this. I'm giving this money. This is love. It's an expression of love. And when you have that, there's also that both that underlying current that it could be taken away. It's just a strange, so I know, and the amount is so minimal compared to like what my clients are dealing with, let's say. So, okay, I wanted to say this because yesterday I had this friend who's a, an amazing young woman, younger woman than me, and she's, she's a single mom and she's an entrepreneur and she's an artist and she's a playwright and all these things. And she like writes to me and she's like, I need to talk to you. She's like, you have money, you're an artist. How did you do it? You and your husband, like, how did you do it? Because we're both artists. And I was like, well, first of all, I just think it's really funny that you think that I have money. <laughs> I don't think of myself as somebody who has money, quote unquote. She's coming at me with this question. And I'm like, but I understand that it's all relative. So when I look at my clients, many of them are really billionaires, let's say. I don't feel like I have anything. <laughs> You know, I can't, I don't live that lifestyle at all. The decisions I make are just so different based on the scale of things. And yet, then I know when I go to Argentina, where my husband's from, and we can take all of his friends out for meals every single day and not even feel like we're spending money, well, then I feel like I do have money. So it is all this relative thing. And yet, I also acknowledge that as an artist, and by the way, my mom is also an artist, a visual artist. I think there's something, there's a starving artist mentality. It's like in so many different creative communities. And I was in theater and film, and now I'm a director. There's this sense that you're supposed to do it because you love it, and you're just supposed to suffer through that and not make money. Money is this bad, evil thing. And if you want to make money, you shouldn't do art. And so I will say, my husband and I have both found a way to do what we love and make money. So I see how that's an interesting tension for other artists to like want to know. So Ariella, you don't find it, the conflict there, you feel like it's okay as an artist to make money or have you just reconciled it? I've done a lot of work to get to that place. And actually Marlise is somebody who, who helped me with that. And she's like helped me over the edge a little bit for the last stage of this. And I told my friend this yesterday, I said, when we started our relationship and by the way, I went to NYU for experimental theater. Now, my grandfather, I was an actress from a very young age. So my grandfather knew that I was a creative artist kind of person. So I actually think in hindsight that he was like, okay, my granddaughter is going to go down this really hard path. I want her to understand that she has a Roth IRA <laughs> and, <like, laughs> and what that could do. <laughs> and then I'm going to give her this education. I mean, in hindsight, like NYU was so expensive then. If I hadn't gone to NYU and had that money instead, like what films could I have made with that? I don't regret it because I had an incredible education. But, you know, the youth, there was not a lot of options, I feel like, in my generation as there are now as far as like what you're supposed to do. You were just going to go to college. So when my husband and I met, we were both going to work for ourselves. We were both going to do this thing. And I was still doing a lot of theater for free, basically, because that's what theater is in your 20s. I was acting and and I was auditioning and he sort of looked at me and said, are you happy? You can see I'm not a person who wears a lot of makeup. And I like had to go on these auditions. I was wearing mini skirts and all this makeup and feeling like I was like 
being thrown to the wolves all the time. And, and I was like, yes, of course I'm happy. This is my dream. I'm living my dream. <laughs> and I was like, so not happy. And my husband is just very direct and he notices things. So it took a lot, but I was like, you're right. I'm not happy. And I actually went to Jungian therapy, dream therapy. And that was what helped me start my business originally because it came out in dreams, basically like this way. It was my therapist's idea. She was like, why don't you make documentaries about old people? And I was like, what? That's a terrible idea. Like, no way. That's not my dream. I want to be a movie star. Through a lot of reflection and meditation and realizing how I would frame it and then doing this for my grandmothers, I realized, no, this is this is beyond, it has nothing to do with age because I tell all kinds of stories, but it was a way to make money and make art too. And I got into this very specific niche and also my husband brought so many different resources to me. Like he's just a lifelong learner and it's amazing if you saw where he came from and even his family to who he is. It's just like one of those miracle stories I feel like in some ways. And he's just someone who's always found the learning. So he brought me Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and Wayne Dyer, and like all of this self-improvement. And so much of it was about relationship with money. We did the Think and Grow, wait, not the Think and Grow Rich, the Smart Couples Finish Rich. It was those series of books. We did all those exercises like in our 20s when we first got married. The Millionaire Next Door, like we read all of it, listened to all of it, discussed it, talked about our values. We had our daughter, like when I was five years later, basically after we, five, six years after we got married, all those years before we became parents, we were exploring these big questions and talking. And we knew we had cultural differences and upbringing differences and all these things. So it was extra important that we really discuss and get clear. And it wasn't that we had to be always in alignment about the same things. I mean, I value travel and adventure probably a million times more than he does but we found a way to make it work where I can do both. Last year we went to Argentina and we went for a month and part of the time we spent in his town, which was actually the best time and just seeing friends. And then part of the time we went to Patagonia and I got to go hiking in the Andes every day. And I got to drag them a couple of times with me. <laughs> they enjoyed it once they were there, but it was not their first choice. So it's like, again, what are your values? They're going to change over time, but knowing what they are helps. And as artists, I think, if you're not living your value as an artist, you're going to wither and die. I think that's probably true. So I want to go back to the books. Newly married couple in their 20s, realizing that there's some differences in how they're approaching the world of money. What did you learn and what are you still applying from that period today? Yeah, I'm thinking about how we still, I, mean, I think every couple has those circular conversations that you are the same fight you have forever, right? We've been together almost 20 years. So it's like what still comes up to this day and that I've started to sort of see from a different vantage point as I get older is just that like for him, again, relativity, I have so much. I was given so much. The fact that my grandparents paid for my college, he brings it up whenever he's really triggered, that comes up every time. And it, used to really annoy me. And now I'm just like, wow, he's really triggered. That's his go-to. <laughs> it's not like intentionally a weapon. It feels like a weapon. It's not. It's that he is still dealing with 
the fact that I do think, and I, maybe I'm wrong, maybe in both of our families it was this way, I do think that money and love are connected. So there was this way in which he felt like no one ever gave him anything. So both there's the pride of being like self-made, right? Because I'm always having to point that out and be like, look at the house we live in, look at the car, like look at what you're able to do. We have such an amazing lifestyle that we've created, we've co-created. And he'll go, nobody ever helped me. And then there's a part of me now that goes, well, my family has now helped you <laughs> a little bit over time. <laughs> like, well, here's the thing that really is interesting about, gosh, I'm telling you everything. I love this. You're so good at this, ladies. Is that my grandmother, when she sends this gift that has increased as the government limits have increased over time, only writes the check to me to this day, even though she loves my husband and talks about how much she loves him. And I've talked to her about how I'm going to put in our bank account together. I'm not squirreling away money. I know I could legally and then it would be mine, right? I know all the rules. It's still ours, but there's that technicality that still hurts his feelings. And I think it's about love languages too. And I think that's what I, when we discovered love languages, that was huge. Like my love languages are so different from his. And so one of his love languages is gifts. And I don't care about that at all. I really don't. I'm like, thanks. I'd rather... I don't know, give me a back rub, you know, something. So, but because that matters to him and it makes him feel like so much more loved when he receives like that, that lack of receiving feels like the absence of love. So I think it's just that exploration that we've been on and I appreciate so much that he woke me up to even exploring these things that had been in a sense like unspoken in my family and taboo and the source of conflict in so many ways and the source of just mystery, but in that dark kind of mystery way. So I feel like those early conversations, they were difficult. I feel like I was probably the most defensive in the conversations and maybe I am still, I don't know, <laughs> because it does feel hard when somebody's saying, well, you got this education as if it sometimes could feel like, well, do I not deserve an education? But the truth is what it points to is really like how I, I really feel like, well, everyone deserves a good education. I'm so blessed and lucky and like, okay, well, how can we play it forward then so that we can maybe make a lot of money and change the world so that more people can have this gift? Or I try to also focus on the future with him. Like, so we're going to be the kind of grandparents like my grandparents were. We want to be those grandparents that can help the kids. And I think it plays out too in, as we became parents and that, money stuff comes up all the time. Sometimes I think I'm trying to give her at least what I had, the same camps and experiences and classes and lessons. And he didn't have any of that, right? So sometimes I can see and we talk about it like, gosh, she just has so much that I didn't have. And both he's proud of that. But I think there's a part that there's like that little child in all of us that can be so hurt by what we didn't receive as a kid. So I think that, again, money is one of those baseline things in the world that is so fraught with meaning for all of us. I also can see my own cluelessness sometimes in a different way. Because I do think, yeah, I didn't have to think about any of this stuff. I was just given all of this privilege. And I didn't even know... God, I didn't know that a Roth IRA was such a gift. <laughs> it's neat. I think 
your relationship, you both have a new perspective. Him from your side, you from your husband's, and that opens your mind. Now, how do you bring these conversations forward to today and have these money conversations? Because you are coming at it from very different perspectives. Do you have a framework? A, I have a ton of amazing resources and friends that I have in my life that help me process some of this stuff sometimes. And I have constantly learning about these are not imaginary conflicts. They're things that other people have conflicts about too. And also I would never, this is sort of a big, big one. And my parents, again, I give them this credit. So when I was little, and my dad actually now lives in Jamaica. And when I was little, my parents lived in Jamaica before they got married. My dad really loved it. My mom, not so much. They moved back, but they took us to Jamaica every single year. And we didn't go to resorts. We went to little hotels and we hung out with Jamaicans and actually had friends. One of my dad's best friends was Goofy, this deep sea fisherman who could like dive under. And he had like, I don't know, a slew of children. And they all lived in this one little one room, tiny shack on the mountain. And we would go there. And I remember just how they lived and how different it was from how we lived. I didn't know what poverty was. I didn't know that language, but I knew when I came home that my life was really different (laughs) than that. And so that gave me this awareness of just having both relationships and experiences with people at different economic levels than me early on. And I feel like that's essential. And I feel like we're giving that to my daughter when we go to Argentina and she sees just the way different people live. But I also will say this growing up where I grew up and then having that juxtaposition, I also saw And I am not at all trying to romanticize poverty because it sucks in this world to be poor because money is, we need it to survive. But I will say that the people I knew in Jamaica were much happier than most of the people I knew in the suburb I was growing up in. And it was just, it was this sort of sense of joy no matter what. And I knew that there was so much misery where I grew up. (laughs) And I was confident really early on that money did not make people happy. And that is something that I'm grateful for, and it stuck with me my whole life. And so one of the things that my husband and I sometimes talk about and struggle with is like the carrot and the stick, right? When you have this thing, when you have this car, when you have this house, no, you're not going to be happy. It's not about that. It's an inner process. So those are like the conversations I'm more interested in having about money. But then on the other, the practical side, I mean, we are very good at making financial decisions together. We're very practical. We both are very quick. Like we're moving now. He's probably a little bit more of a fast mover risk taker. And I'm a little more of like, hold on, I want to make sure we sell our house first before we buy another house kind of thing. But we balance each other and we do talk about it and we get frustrated probably each of us sometimes. But overall, we are like on a trajectory together we're planning together. We look at it as our money. Yeah. And we are proud of each other both for, there've been years where he made way more than I did. And there've been years when I made more and we've supported each other both as partners, but as just artists too, because there's feast, sometimes it is feast or famine, both as an entrepreneur and as an artist. And I was going to say earlier, you know, I have this documentary series belonging in the USA that I made during the last, started in 2017 And that was the first time as a documentary filmmaker that I had to raise money. And before that, I had made over 100 films, but for private families, where no one was going to see it beyond the family. Sometimes 
thousand people might see it for a company or something, but it wasn't a bigger public and I never had to fundraise. And so there I was suddenly in this vulnerable position of fundraising. And that was excruciating. Oh my gosh. I just saw how, because one of the things I never want to do is exploit my relationships by asking for money. Cause I have a lot of people in my life that have a lot of money and I never want them to feel like I'm in their life because I want something from them. Because I think that's a major problem that we have in our society with money. And so I almost took it the other extreme of like, I'm never going to ask anyone for anything. <laughs> and so actually I'm going to give you as much as I can of myself. So Marlise is one of these people who, when I, after my first film was done, she arranged the most amazing, I was going to the Bay area and I had this film finished and I was like, I need audience to test it with. I was like, can anybody help me by putting together a quick screening two weeks in the future? She got 50 people. She got an amazing space. 50 people came. She got donations of food. It was this amazing event. It was so, it just meant so much to me. And I raised some money. But at the end of that night, her and her stepmom who were helping clean up, they both said to me, you know, you need to be a lot better about asking for money. <laughs> they were like, and so Marlise did some like coaching with me. And then actually I did a Facebook live where she came on and did more coaching with me because I was like, <gasps> I don't want to have to ask. And I read books. I've done money classes and I've done like all the things. And still sometimes I cringe at the idea. There's just such a vulnerability. And yet I also know that as an artist, what I have to offer is so valuable. It is a gift. And anyone who can help support me, it's giving them so much to be able to be a part of this thing. It's like taking the focus off of me and making it on the stories I'm telling and the the benefit to the people who get to support it. That's like how I've had to frame it. But I still, as I'm telling you this, my like chest is constricting. I kind of feel like throwing up. Ariel, I want to go back to something that you said a little while ago. You said that money doesn't provide happiness. Does money provide unhappiness, do you think? I think that it does not provide either. I think that it's just like a lot of things. Whatever you are, it just makes it more, right? Like it accentuates what is. So, I mean, and I could be so wrong about this, but I feel like it's like shopping addiction, right? Like you could shop and buy and, and have, and like you could have all this stuff around you and like it's not going to fill that hole that you need, which may be relationships or it may be comfort or it may be just quiet and peace or the woods. I don't know. I mean, for me, I don't think that money causes unhappiness. I don't think money is the root of all evil. I think we have all these money memes and none of them and all of them are true. It sort of depends on your own relationship to the ideas. And I don't think money causes unhappiness, but I don't think it causes happiness. I think it's a tool. I think it's an incredible metaphor for how we live our lives. I think that it's like on the sort of deepest spiritual levels, it's energy. That's what my, I had this amazing business coach and that's what I took. She had a money class and I took it a couple times and it really helped. It was amazing. But that was her whole premise was money is energy. I was just wondering, did that feed into your fundraising efforts? That class I took years before. So probably not. That helped me more with my business development. And it also helped me recognize one of the things I'm not always the best at, although when I do it, it always layers upon itself is just all the 
I'm the person in the family, which is unusual. I've learned from friends as a woman, I manage all the money stuff, right? I do the books and I know what we have and I do all that I'd like to. It's probably from my grandmother <laughs> sort of saying, you've got to know your stuff. I do that. But sometimes I get busy or I travel a lot and I don't balance my checkbook for a few months. But I know from that class that when I sit down and focus on money, and actually, ironically, I was doing that just before this conversation, when I do my balancing of checkbooks and when I look at what I have and when I sort of, and my husband, I often, we've been a little bit lax about it lately this year. It's been such a strange year. But we will have regular, at least once a month, sit down, look at our accounts, talk about what we have, talk about, and he's actually recently just really gotten into the stock market and, and investing, which I'm so excited about because he's going to be so good at it because he's like a very hyper-focused person and obsessive. I've been waiting for him to like really want to get into it. But we trust each other and I trust myself with money now. I think that's a big piece of it too. I think that until you are aware of your sort of money story and you're, and you're not even like dealing with it, how can you trust yourself? And I think that concept of money is energy and the classes I've taken and the books that I've read have all allowed me. I trust that what I do has value. I trust that I am worthy of whatever comes to me, all the good things. And you know, so there's a lot of like mantras and manifestation, I guess, in my world. And I just know that whenever I am in the greatest relationship with myself and centeredness. There's so much more flow in general, and that flow is also about money. How do you define your relationship with money now as an adult? Less sneaky. <laughs> sneaky like the taking my mom's like this money. Is true. And- <laughs> this is true. We were leading to a life of crime. Glad we haven't gone that direction. <laughs> I felt so guilty before it even started. I mean... I think of my relationship with money, I think of it as, again, this great resource that can allow me to manifest my dreams in all their forms. I mean, one of, I know one of, I read the four hour work week when my daughter's 10 and a half, but when she was probably one, I was like, yes, my greatest resource of all is time. I think any parent knows that. And that is the, like, the single biggest thing that I'm going to, and also I know nobody regrets being with people they love at their deathbed, they regret all the time they spent away. So I've just been focused on, well, how can I maximize my time with these people that I love, this precious being that came into our lives, and also do the work that I love, because I do love the work that I do. So I think about money as a resource, because the more money I have, the more at ease I do feel. I feel less stressed when I'm not thinking about, oh gosh, how are we going to pay for X, Y, Z? So I look at it as a way to create spaciousness, time, and create work that really impacts people. Because when I'm in that good relationship with money, then I'm more available for new projects to come my way, to be of better service to the people that I serve. And as far as my belonging series goes, I just this week had a conversation with a distributor in New York who wants to finally get me some money for those, for those films, hopefully, and sell them on the education market. And that was sort of this, I had this amazing angel man who's a documentary filmmaker older than me who, Art Jones, I talked to him about other things and he's always trying to get me to 
what are you going to do about distribution? How are you going to sell these movies? How are you going to get them to more people? And because that's so low on my agenda, because I'm still battling as an artist with like, I want it to be free and available to everyone. Okay. But that is not sustainable as a career choice. So anyway, he introduced me to this wonderful man in New York who now wants to sell these three films. And that's great. And it's, again, it's sort of like, Oh, I've, made myself available to that opportunity to come my way. And I do think that there is, I love The Soul of Money, that book. And I think that there is absolutely enough. And I love what she talks about. It's not about feast or famine, right? Or abundance versus scarcity. It's about enoughness. That's Lynn Twist. And that was like, so profound. When I heard her speak, I got to meet her. She's actually also from Evanston, Illinois. It's like, we're both from Evanston. She lives in the Bay Area. Yes. And I loved her book. And I actually sent that book to my grandmother. She would not read it. But (laughs) my mom and my aunt both read it while they were at her house and loved it. So I mean, I think it's like anything, hopefully, we will in bettering my relationship with money and how I handle it and how I talk about it and or don't talk about it, hopefully our daughter will have a better relationship with money and be more able. And the funny part is my daughter really doesn't care about money yet. And, and I'm kind of like nervous about that because I'm like, wait, are we giving you too much? Like, you don't want anything? She does have like an allowance, but we always forget to give her and she never asks us for it. But she has three piggy banks, right? She has the spend, save, sadaka. She knows those concepts. Her main thing she wants to buy is bubble gum at Walgreens. Like that's the big purchase and that's fine. I think that we have to lean into the uncomfortable space that it is to talk about money so that we can better the future. And also like I do with my clients, what is wealth? Maya asks me, sometimes our daughter, she'll be like, are we rich? She's asked me that lots of times. And I always say, well, depends on what you mean by rich. We're rich. We have this incredible family on two continents. We have so many friends. We have always enough food. We have so many opportunities. So yes, I guess we are rich. But what do you mean by rich? What does rich mean to you? Because I think a kid asking that, why are you asking that? Ariel, what's your next money conversation going to be? I guess this is two questions. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I knew you were going to ask that because I listened. (laughs) I guess now that I'm thinking about it, it will probably be with Maya because I actually, as I'm talking to you, I'm curious, I want to ask her about her relationship with money. And I want to ask her about why it is she doesn't ask us for her allowance or pay attention or how we can be, I don't tie allowance to chores because I don't want to do that. And she does help a lot. But I guess I want to ask her about that and why or why not. Like, what can I do to help with her getting her allowance, because I always forget. (laughs) I don't know if you have any advice for like, how do you remember to give your kids their allowance? And also, is it even something she wants at this point? Maybe she doesn't want it and I'm imposing something on her. I don't know. So I think that'll be a good conversation. I'm going to have it like right after this, (laughs) if she'll have it with me. 
That sounds like a very rich conversation, pun intended. No, but I really, I think it would be interesting. What is she valuing? Maybe there's some concern. I've heard of kids having concern that the parents are going to run out of money. Why are they, why are they giving me this money? You know, it'd be interesting to hear what her answers are. That's so true. And she has had quite, like, as we're going through this moving process, we've really involved her and trying to teach her about mortgages and money. And, and she has been like, do we have enough? Are we going to be okay? You know, there is that anxiety, that sort of low level, maybe it's just human because it is about survival money too at its base. Well, I love that you're always looking for these conversations and you're looking for the educational opportunities for yourself, for your daughter, for your family. It's been such a pleasure to have you on Money Tales, Arielle. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun. Thanks, Arielle. Thank you. Sandy, what a great conversation with Arielle Nobile. I really appreciated her perspective coming in as a documentary filmmaker who is normally on one side of the questions. And today she made herself vulnerable and was really open. And I appreciated her opening up to us. I appreciated that too, Cami. This is probably the third or fourth time within Money Tales where we get to ask the questions to someone who's used to asking them him or herself. I thought Arielle had some really thoughtful responses and shared some really cool stories about money, especially about how money is intertwined with the expression of love and also with power. The stories she shared about her grandparents were really interesting, especially I would say the the story she shared about getting that Roth IRA as a young person, but only just now having appreciation for what a amazing gift that really was, even though she didn't appreciate it at the time she received it. What stuck out to me were the two grandmothers, the, the different gifts, the one grandmother who consistently gave her $100, never changed. And then the other grandma who gave increasingly larger and larger sums, but there felt like there were some strings attached. There was different appreciation for what those gifts entailed and how Ariel felt as a result of those gifts, or at least what was implied from that grandma. Yes. And I'm surprised that this concept of using money to demonstrate or express love hasn't really come up before in Money Tale conversations that I'm remembering off the top of my head. I feel like this is the first time and it's something that's quite common, especially in certain cultures. So I was glad that Ariel shared that in the conversation. Yeah, I was too. And I loved then she brought in her husband into the story. And in this context of love and money, I appreciated that how they navigated different money messages that they received as kids. He grew up in Argentina. She grew up in the United States and just also their upbringing and how he really was more of a bootstrapper, like everything he created was his own. She was also very savvy and bootstrap a lot of her efforts, but she had family help. And how do you navigate that in the conversations that are required to do that well is really important. And I appreciated her sharing a lot of the challenges and the successes they've had. Me too. That's something that we see 
oftentimes among clients because people grow up in different households and money is treated differently and used differently in those households. And it can be a big divide for certain couples. And it seems like Arielle and her husband really did a great job rolling up their sleeves and setting aside time to read books, to reflect with each other, to talk with each other and really figure this all out. I was really impressed by that. And then she brought up their their love languages. I love that they discovered that and how important that was because each one had an appreciation for something different and be able to know what your significant other's love language is, is really important. Uh, for her husband, he wants gifts and that's how he expresses his love. That's how he feels good when someone gives to him. I really enjoyed that part of the story. I agree, Cammie. And there's so much conversation in the overall discussion with Ariel about gifts. I hope our listeners are really keying into the fact that gifts can be hard. There's a lot to think about when making gifts to someone. Part of what you need to think about is what is the purpose and intention of the gift? Is it truly a gift? Are you giving them something that you don't care what they do with it when they receive it because it's just a gift? Or are you making a gift and have certain expectations attached to the gift? And if that's the case, I think people would be much better off if they were able to effectively communicate what those expectations are so that the recipient of the gift understands that. And this is especially true for gifts of money or other financial assets. Communication, it just is so important. So even the recipient, I would assume, also should be vocal if they don't know what the expectations are to actually ask and clear any of that confusion and gray area that maybe doesn't need to even be there. I think that's right. And it was interesting. Arielle mentioned doing that, Cammie. So when she said that her grandmother was making the annual exclusion gifts to Ariel. She was presumably writing the check to Ariel based on what Ariel was sharing with us, not to Ariel and her husband. And Ariel was mentioning that her it sort of made things awkward because she knew that the gift was for her, but she also communicated to her grandmother that she was going to use the gift for her and her husband, for her family. And presumably that was fine with the grandmother but yet the grandmother is still writing the checks to Ariel. It's interesting because I can put myself into the shoes of the grandmother in Ariel's shoes and also in her husband's shoes. There's no rules to giving gifts there in this context, right? There are certain rules that we've talked about in the past Money Tales uh, Financial Insight about tax and gift tax rules and implications, but in terms of just making gifts and communicating about them, there aren't rules. Yet, the more communication, to your point, Cami, that happens, the better off it is because everyone then understands and can get comfortable. You know, Sandy, the other thing I really wanted to hit on is I loved when Arielle talked about she and her husband are both artists and they're walking the entrepreneur's journey. But artists, it's implied that they're not really supposed to be interested in money. They're supposed to be passionate about their art regardless of the money. And I loved her saying that they actually intentionally think differently and talk a lot about money. And she talked a lot about when they got married and the books they read and the conversations. And they bucked this assumption that to be 
a really successful artist, which they both seem to be very successful and achieving what they want to achieve, but also mindful about money because they've got a daughter, they've got dreams, they want to travel, they want to do stuff that costs money. I found that all to be so inspiring. And what a a fun person to be talking to. I can't wait to listen to her podcasts and be a avid follower of her work. I agree, Cammie. Thanks again, Sandy. These are great. Really appreciate our podcasts, Money Tales listeners. Listening, commenting, be sure to reach out to us at podcasts at Asperient.com. We love the support and are enjoying being on this journey with you. Yes, thanks so much. And thanks to you, Cammie. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cammie Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.